This is Joy Paris, and you're listening to the Empathy Global Podcast. Here we will come together and listen to the stories and struggles of people around the world. No blame, no political bent. We share our stories to erase the lines that are separating our increasingly fractured world. Because in the end, if nothing else, we are all profoundly human. And finding the beauty in that and being willing to feel someone else's pain, someone else's story with them, that is empathy. Are you interested in helping out our mission here at Empathy Global? Visit us at empathyglobal.org or you can become a patron at patreon.com slash empathyglobal. We have an online store with some awesome shirts that you should check out and I will be releasing some exclusive Patreon content soon, so subscribe. Thanks so much for checking us out. Hey everybody, today we are getting together to discuss the topic of blackness in America. So I have my three guests here, I've got Lysandria, Michelle, and Gabe, and I'm going to start out by letting them just do a little intro, tell us a little bit about them. Who wants to start? Okay, well I'll get started. <laughs> um, my name is Lysandria, um, I am 48 years old, been married for 30 years, have four children. Um, they are all grown, thank God. I am a educator in the public schools of Volusia County, been teaching math for 14 years and just trying to get along in this current age. Uh, my name is Michelle, I am 25. Um, I'm a native for, for uh, Floridian. Um, I grew up in Sanford, born in Orlando. Um, I'm currently a student at Rollins College, pursuing my master's in clinical mental health counseling. Um, I, mm, yeah, I, I guess I'm kind of the same as the previous guest, like just trying to navigate everything that's going on right now in the current climate and do everything that I can to just educate everybody that I encounter, um, as kindly as possible. My name is Gabriel. I am 28 years old. I am a student at Daytona State College. I'm going for ESE education. I'm also a registered behavior technician and I am a performer for Penguin Entertainment as well as local community theater. I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia in the 90s. So just looking at life through that lens, I guess. Got it, nice. Well, since you know Empathy Global's biggest goal is to hear stories so I'm gonna ask you each to tell me your story um so I one song recent song that I really love is by Andy Grammer and there's a part where he says tell me your story but don't leave the good parts out and by the good parts we don't always mean the parts that we think are the good parts you know so um you know the deep parts the parts that made you who you are which sometimes can be the negative turning points and sometimes can be like the overcoming stories you know so who wants to start with that first I know that's a little bit deeper of a question so if you want to go in a different order you're welcome I mean I guess I can start um well um so I was born and raised in Atlanta downtown Atlanta I'm a Grady baby for all those who are also from Atlanta and I just grew up in a very cultured environment where in Atlanta, especially during the 90s, there was a lot of flocking to Atlanta. It was the new Mecca. It was where everybody was going. So there was a lot of diversity. Then around 1997, I moved down here to Florida, specifically Daytona Beach, and it was culture shock to the very core of my soul. There isn't a lot of diversity. There isn't a... A good cultural basis so I felt really out of my element so I went from a huge city to a town where everybody knows each other and I had to deal with a lot of bullying and racism I actually never experienced any of those until I moved to Daytona Beach to Atlanta there was never you were great if you were intelligent like people made fun of the stupid kid I came down here, it was the exact opposite. People made fun of me because I was intelligent and I had to dumb myself down in um, as a way to self-preserve and protect myself against bullying. And that kind of backfired, so to speak. But growing up in the area, just 
been around a lot of poverty, a lot of ignorance, a lot of stupidity. It's really just progressed. However, once I got out of grade school, I moved on to college. I've been in college for a long time. Haven't paid for school. Thank God. Thank God. Scholarships <laughs> are amazing. Um, I've had a lot of great opportunities. I've been around, got to perform in a lot of great places. Got into acting, which I never thought I would ever do. I used to have crippling stage fright. Now I'm performing in front of hundreds of people, getting paid for it. I just opened up a business where I'm hoping to teach kids how to, you know, do everything professionally in the performing arts, really get them prepared for the real world. If they don't want to do arts or anything like that, they can at least have a place where they can go and relieve stress and add more culture. So we're not stuck in a non-culturally diverse area. Mm -hmm. So that's... So you're bringing Atlanta here. I'm trying to bring Atlanta here. You can take the guy of Atlanta. You can't take the Atlanta out of the guy. <laughs> right. That's Michelle, cool. do you want to go? Yeah. Um, so, like I said, I'm 25. Uh, I grew up in Florida. Um, the area that I grew up in um, was, wasn't very diverse, but because my mom worked for the elementary school I went to, um, it was in a, in a very affluential area. So I was surrounded by people who didn't look like me. And because of that, and I was in like the developmental age, so I grew up talking like them, acting like them, um, taking on a lot of their mannerisms. And so when I went around my family, I was made fun of because of it, and so was my sister. Um, so uh, when I went from elementary school to middle school, which was in Sanford, I was made fun of the f because of that. You know, people were like, why do you talk funny? Why do you hang out with these people? Um, and, and surprisingly, it was the people who looked like me who said these things to me. Um, so that was pretty shocking. Um, so, but I was like, whatever, this is these are just my friends. These are people I hang out with. Um, and then I got into high school and that was, you know, I think everybody kind of middle school is kind of just like finding who your people are. And then mm -hmm. middle and then high school is just hanging out with those same people over and over again. Nobody really cares. So in high school, I started hanging out with the same people. So it was fine. Um, but in high school, that's when I started going through like a depression and I thought it was just like a phase because you know, high school angst. Um, but then, you know, I went through high school and I was still struggling with it. And then I got into college and I was still struggling with it. And then once I got into college, I was like, you know, most colleges, you pay for all the services they have already. So I just went ahead and went to the counseling center and they were like, yeah, you've been dealing with depression for a long time and you've lived with it for so long. It's not going to go away overnight. You have to learn. It's like relearning over and over again. So dealing with you know, like high functioning anxiety and dealing with um, like really deep depression um, was a huge learning curve because now I had a name to it, which I appreciate it because before it was kind of like kind of just walking in the dark what's going on. Um, but now like I have a name to it. And so I found tools and people to surround myself with to help me deal with those things. Um, and so because of that, that's kind of what led me to want to pursue a career in counseling just because I, I think anybody can pursue a degree in counseling, whether or not you've dealt with mental illness, but it's, if you have dealt with it, then you know the, um, you just know the loneliness, you know how dark and deep it can get, and you wanna help other people who have experienced that. And me now looking at somebody who's really going through it, I sit there and I like, I wanna cry, cause I'm like, I know what that's like, and that is the worst place in the world to be. Yeah. Um, especially to be at a place where you don't even wanna live anymore. So that's kind of what, you know, spurred me to want to pursue this career. Um, I think there were a lot of things. I, at first, you know, I went through depression. I thought there was a lot of environmental things. Um, but I think that, I, I do think it was like having the pressure of, okay, I'm black, but I'm not, you know, typical black. And then being ridiculed for that over and over again. Um, and then not finding my space because I hang out with these friends, but I don't look like them, but they still accept me. I hang out with people who look like me, but they don't accept me because I act a certain way. So I spent a lot of time in high school also isolating myself. Yeah. Um, but now, um, obviously I'm not cured, but I've learned ways to cope with it. I've learned um, to not, I wouldn't say not care what people think, but like take it with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. and like filter out what's for me what's not for me um and ultimately i want to teach people how to do that as well yeah yeah this is amazing um listening to you guys i've been where you are 
Um, I was born in Sanford, mm. and I lived there for 10 years of my life. And so I was born in Georgetown, and my friends were all like me. And then my dad came back from overseas, and so we went to live with him in Oklahoma. Mm. <laughs> so I come from totally surrounded by everybody that looks like me, acts like me, talks like me, walks like me, to... Okay, so, um, <laughs> since my mom was exposed, even in the Sanford area, to other cultures and other ways, because she had a gift, my mom was a concert soloist, mm. a soprano, and so she was trained, in fact, that's where her college degree was, in choral music, and so her experience um, from high school, she went, you know, during her era, she, she actually got pregnant in high school with me. So I was taboo from the start. And back in the day, if you were pregnant, you couldn't stay in public school. That was a no, no. Cause they didn't want you to influence the other girls. So she actually had to finish school at night, but she was determined that she was going to get her education. So she did. And in the course of her trying to better herself, she met a lady that just fell in love with my mom. And she did everything she could to get my mom into college. And so my mom went to school because of the lady. And she, the lady was there with her. I mean, she just pushed her, pushed her, pushed her. Because she was like, you know, just because you had this baby doesn't mean that your life ends or whatever. And then she got married to my dad um, when I was almost, I was just over one. And then my sister came along. And so my mom was going to school. She had two kids. She had a husband. But my dad was traveling at the time. So um, there was not a lot of him in my early life. And in fact, I didn't even live with my mom for the first 10 years of my life. Well, part of the first 10 years. So because of her exposure to other cultures, she didn't raise us like black folk, if that makes sense. So when we moved to Oklahoma even though it was a culture shock because now there was almost nobody that looked like me. <laughs> I was still able to navigate because I had been exposed through my mother to how to act, if you will, for lack of a better description. So um, when you talk about the bullying and, and the people making fun of you, because whenever we would come back home to visit, my friends who I grew up with, all of a sudden, why you talk like that? You don't. You so I experienced that same thing that you're talking about and, and the isolation and not really knowing where I fit or whatever. And so um, because I was in a new place and, you know, it was a military town, so very diverse. I mean, all types of people from all different walks of life, all kind of uh, races, cultures, creeds, whatever. It was there. And so I think that was something that helped to a certain extent. And I moved there from seventh grade all the way through 12th grade. So because I was one of the smart ones, if you will, I was always put in the advanced classes. So if I wasn't the only one, there may have been one more. And so that was my experience from seventh all the way through 12. But I wanted to be with my people and hang out with folk who looked like me or whatever. And so I always had a thin line to walk, so to speak. And I never really had any close friends. I mean, I had folk that I could talk to and shoot the breeze with or whatever, but my mom was very protective of us, number one, because she had had some experiences as a child. So she was trying to, you know, keep us from being violated, if you will. And so that going over people's house and staying the night and doing all that kind of stuff, that, that was not allowed. So it was something that protected me, but actually I was already ruined at that point because I had been molested when I was younger. So by the time I got with my mom, the damage had already been done, so to speak. But then I had this other thing to deal with. So I know what you mean about the depression and not fitting in and the bullying and the just the general flack that you catch from people. And you're always like, well, what did I do? I mean, is, is there something wrong with me? It makes you question your very existence sometimes. And, you know, I've been to the point where I was like, well, maybe I just, maybe nobody will miss me. Nobody loves me. And so you go through those things and... Hopefully, you have somebody in your life that helps talk you down off the ledge, if you will. Mm -hmm. And that was my mom. She was always very supportive. She was always into us. We never had to worry about um, 
not being cared for because if anything else I knew my mom loved me and I knew that she cared for us so she was always our rock and trying not to tear up here because she passed away three years ago and I really I still miss her and you said who do we talk to about the hard questions my person's kind of gone except for my husband so um it's very it's very difficult sometimes to get through things because um you always have to kind of step back and the way you would normally react you can't because you remember wait I don't look like them <laughs> and they might feel threatened so at any time I could have a target on my back and that's kind of how things have been all through my life and I didn't really feel threatened at certain points but now in this culture uh, it's like every day I'm looking for a dart to come so it's very I'm more unsettled now than I used to be but I know exactly what you guys are talking about and I understand and I definitely I feel you <laughs> I feel you thank you for sharing um, how do you think given that your kids are probably this generation our generation how do you feel like your experiences compare actually I mean you can think of it three generations you know how do you think your experiences compare to your mom's versus your kids as far as the black culture you know oh I used to tell us stories about how they had to go to the back to get this that or the other and how um you know people used to call her nigger and and you know she actually experienced that and so we were kind of cushioned from that so to speak my sister and I so we didn't really experience that firsthand because we moved away I guess right at the time where we would have been more exposed to other cultures because as a child you know before I was 10 as I said we were kind of in our own little bubble so we didn't really mingle we didn't really hang out we didn't really go outside our circle and then when we moved into the more diverse diverse culture you know, there was a different ball game, and even though there might have been racism, I mean, I could only tell it in the way that someone looked at me sideways or, or you know, treated me, um, and the little things that you pick up on, because you, like, here's a, for instance, the other day, I went to Dollar Tree to get something, and there was only one cashier, and there were, there was a, a, a mother and her, obviously her son, um, ahead and then there was a, a white lady and then there was me and I only went in there to get one thing and so the whole time I'm standing in line this lady keeps looking back over her shoulder and at first I tried to ignore it you know and say it's just me I'm just being paranoid or whatever because my husband tells me that all the time because I pick up on stuff like that mm -hmm. and um it just you know if she had only done it once and that have been that then I would have thought maybe you know I was there was nothing but she must have glanced back at least five times. And now I'm getting pretty steamed because I'm like, oh, we're in freaking Dollar Tree. I did not come in here to rob you, female, was what was my thoughts. And so um, when the other cashier finally came out of the office and opened another, he looked at me, he said, wow, you're, you're sitting back, standing back there looking so sad. I said, man, you just get tired of the BS sometimes because, you know, this lady's looking back over her shoulder like I'm about to jump on her or something. And I'm just trying to buy my chips. And so he he kind of chuckled. He said, yeah. He said, well, have a good day. I hope the rest of your day goes better. And so my kids, I, I really, they're, they're your ages. They're exactly your ages. I have a 25-year-old. I have one that's about to be 28, and I have one that's 29. And so they're exactly your ages. And my sons, more than my daughters, I fear for. Because, you know, all you need is those three words. I feared for my life or five words, whatever it is. And somebody can open fire on them. And I feel get away with it. You just committed murder. My kids mean you no harm. They're not threatening. And I try to tell them, you hate to have to have that conversation with your child about, you know, you got to act this way. You got to do that. You got to do this. And so, you know, when the phone rings sometimes, you're like, oh, God. And especially all the stuff you see in the news and all the stories that are happening or whatever. It's, it's, it's terrible to have to live in a perpetual state of unease mm -hmm. personally and then on their behalf. So I feel like most of you answered our next question, which was how do you think that your skin color has affected your story? But would either of you want to elaborate on that? 
I'm still getting my thoughts together, so. <laughs> um, what's the question one more time? How do you feel like your skin color specifically has affected your story? Hmm. Maybe the high points or the low points. Well. Okay, so for me, my life has been a roller coaster. When I'm down here in Florida, I'm in poverty. When I'm in Georgia, I am very well off living with my dad or my mom. And in Atlanta, your skin color does not really play a factor because it's a chocolate city. And the dynamics in Atlanta are very different from the dynamics here in Florida, where here, Black people will try to hold you down in Atlanta, Black people try to push everybody up. There is a complete different mindset that prevails over both cities. When I moved down here initially, I spoke with eloquence. I would enunciate all of my consonants mm -hmm. and I let you know that I knew things. The children down here didn't like that, white or Black, but most of my friends were white. And it wasn't because I didn't want to be with Black people. It wasn't because I didn't love Black people. It's not that I didn't get along with them. It was that we couldn't really connect. Then hanging out with more white people, I started to notice that even with them, I couldn't connect as much because there were very racist undertones. There was that level of, and this is this is outside of elementary school. Elementary school, there was a little bit of it, but when you get into middle school, high school, you start to see where there is blatant racist feelings for people like me, where you're hearing stuff like my white friend saying, oh, I'm blacker than you. <laughs> I'm blacker than the ace of spades, excuse me. So we only come, we can only act one way. So there's this mindset that black people have to act one way. There's this mindset that because I don't talk like this, I am from the hood and all that, that I can't still be black and that you can somehow be blacker than me that you can somehow assume my color and then just take it off whenever you want. Don't tell me that your favorite rapper is Snoop Dogg. And then in the same breath, without a pause, say that the greatest rapper alive is Eminem. It's, there was a lot of diminishing my black narrative and putting it into their box. I had teachers when I was going to Silver Sands, which was predominantly white. Mm -hmm. I went to Silver Sands for sixth grade. Yeah, I went there for sixth grade and um, seventh grade. <laughs> that was the year, I guess. <laughs> and it was, I went from Campbell to Silver Sands and I went back to Campbell. When I was at Silver Sands, I was one of like maybe, it's probably less than 20 black kids at the school. And we all knew each other and like three of them were my friends and there was such we were looked at as if we were exotic huh. i started dating white girls at the school dating but they would look at me like i was the eighth wonder of the world like i was just this super amazing guy and they will leave their boyfriends to get with me and then I would break up with them or whatever they break up with me and I started to notice a trend y'all are crazy not <laughs> it was around that time I started know, uh, learning about like Emmett Till and things of that nature and how people would set black men up for failure mm -hmm. and there were several times where I had to really watch the people I was around and not be alone with certain people because they had a tendency to try to lie on me. And it gets to the point where when I was in sixth grade, I went on a trip to Alabama with the college reach out program at Daytona State, um, which was under um, Derrick Henry. And on the way there, we were looking at a video of Emmett Till. And 
that shook me to the core of my being because never in my wildest dreams would I think that somebody would be mutilated for allegedly whistling at a white woman. And he was 14, he was my age. And that threw me for the biggest loop. It scared the crap out of me. Especially when you're in that moment life. Right. And I just had a friend recently get fired from a job where the girl was harassing him all night. And he grabs, he grabs her hand and says, stop touching me. And he gets fired because he's standing up for himself because he started being harassed. And she violated him. She violated him. And because nobody wanted to say anything about it, nobody wanted to take up on his side, he had to lose his job for that because she made such a big deal about it. And nobody wants to come with the fact that she did something too. Now, yes, she did get fired, but the fact of the matter is you fired him when he was the one being harassed. How many times did he tell the manager that this was happening? How many times did this happen to other people and you didn't say anything, but when he says something about it or when she makes a big deal about it? So this was the kind of mindset that I had to grow up with. And that conversation that every black family really has to have with their children. My mom had to have the conversation. My dad had to have a conversation. And my dad was a cop. My dad served on the uh, Atlanta Police Department for 31 years as a lieutenant. And he had to sit me down and tell me like, son, you have to act a specific way. When you get pulled over, you have to do this. You have to do that. Don't talk back. Don't be belligerent. And I get pulled over a lot now because my headlight is busted and I, <laughs> I haven't gotten it fixed yet because I'm not paying a thousand dollar deductible. Um, but when the first time I got pulled over, back when my car was fine and everything like that, it was in the middle of the night, I was in Lake Helen and I'm coming around the corner and I see this car with the lights off and I'm thinking it's just a civilian car, just you know parked out there and the lights come on. It's pitch black, I don't know where I am and I'm in Lake Helen with no street lights. <laughs> I'm scared. So I'm like, oh God, this is gonna be cheapest creeps. I'm gonna wind up dead somewhere. And the officer was really nice. But the entire time I'm shaking, I'm like trembling, shaking while I'm trying to reach for stuff. And it wasn't because he was a cop. I'm not afraid of cops. It was the fact that I'm somewhere where I don't know where I am. This is a cop. And this is a cop during the time where people are being shot and killed. And I know all cops aren't bad, but I don't want to run into the wrong one, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. to that one minority that does feel some type of way. And I'm a tall guy. I'm a tall black guy with dreadlocks. And I don't know if they could fear for their life huh. and try to stand their ground. And I'm on a t-shirt, right. you know what I mean? So huh. I'm growing up with these thought processes, with this mindset, and I don't try to I don't want people to feel bad or pity what's going on, but I want people to be aware that this is a reality that we face. And this isn't a reality that's coming from, oh, you're just being paranoid or you're just being silly. This is my reality. This is what I have to face every day. I got pulled over last week and the officer was probably younger than me, short guy. And I noticed his hand was on his holster the entire time. And I know you want to get home to your family, but just as much as you want to get home, I want to get home. So there's, there's this, I've come to understand this prejudice that I don't think is based in hatred, but based in, I don't know, that's your reality. But then I have my reality and my reality is I have to always watch what I say and do. I have to always watch the culture I'm in, the the company I keep, because at any point in time, it could be considered a threat and that's it. But that's pretty much. So Michelle, do you want to answer that same question? Yeah, can you repeat it again? (laughs) Uh, How do you feel that your skin color has affected your story in particular? Um... I would say probably because I grew up in the church um, from a very young age. I've, that's all I've known. I've known from a young age, you know, who Jesus is, what he's done, all of that. And so um, the church I started going to, I started going to when I was 11. Mm-hmm. Um, 
actually left when I was 22 and I would have to say it was because of the current climate of things that was going on and I just mm-hmm. couldn't put myself in that environment yeah um hearing you know the microaggressions hearing people say well he deserved it and I'm like nobody mm-hmm. deserves to die like that yeah. I mean, we're not saying that you know what he did was right but nobody deserves to die like that you know and I think kind of what spearheaded is I mean we're all from the area we know when the whole Trayvon Martin shooting happened mm-hmm. um and and then Sanford it happened you know a couple miles from where I live and it was good you know all the churches getting together and trying to um like bring unity around the situation mm-hmm. and you know do that but it was it was more individual those people I was encountering in my everyday life in church um or on Facebook or whatever who would you know say things you know try to defend essentially try to defend the situation and when I when I looked at that situation I there's nothing defendable about it I said he was a 17 year old kid who should have gone home to his dad and he didn't and um and I encountered people who didn't believe that and they thought well he was this and he was that and um I had to remove myself from people um and so and then suddenly because I was black I became like the spokesperson for all black people and I told people I'm not the spokesperson I can only speak for Michelle and how I feel I said I can show you five other black people who don't agree with me Mm -hmm. um and so I had to experience that from my church and you know things that I would I became more um outspoken about things that were plaguing the black community um about racism microaggressions um police brutality um just you know all of those things and people didn't like it you know when I was when I started and and I can only speak from the experience because I grew up in church um and that was my life and so when I started there I was the quiet nice polite mannerable black girl you know Mm -hmm. and so when all of this started happening I started getting more outspoken more I want to say angry but like frustrated um and so when I started doing that, they didn't like it. And, you know, it was even a moment where my pastor pulled me aside and he was like, you know what? Maybe you're just making something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. And that was, I went there for a couple more months and I left. And I said, I'm, I didn't tell anybody I was leaving. I just stopped going. Yeah. And my whole family left because we were like, we're not doing this anymore. We yeah. can't be in a space where we aren't um, being validated in our feelings. We're not being validated by the reality of what we're seeing, mm-hmm. um, which wasn't happening there. Yeah. And um, and so that was, you know, one instance and even just in, you know, upside from church life. Um, and because I didn't get my first black friend until I was in high school. So all of my friends have been white growing up and mm-hmm. having to be the spokesperson for them, having to tell them, hey, hey, hey don't don't touch my hair or um, having to tell them, no, you're not the whitest. You're not the blackest white person, you know, or however that goes like you're not that and that's not okay to say let me tell you why that's not okay to say um and so i've lived the past couple years of my life having to be this educator that i didn't necessarily ask to be um and i'm not upset with it i i personally like telling people who genuinely want to know like why is this not okay um it's the people who try to fight you on it and say well i don't understand why this is an issue i don't understand why i can't say this why can't i say this word and i'm like let me sit you down and show, tell you the, you know, 400 years of history that black people have gone through and why you can't say that word, you know? Um, so I think because of my skin color, I've had to become this educator. Like I said, that I didn't necessarily ask to become. Um, and I, you know, and I think it's the same deal. Every, every space I walk into, um, and I don't know if this is wrong or if it's right, but I look around like, am I the only black person here? I look around and say, is there anybody else who looks like me? Um, and because of the spaces that, especially now that I frequent, I'm not, or, or I am, I am the only black person, especially because of the school I'm going to currently. Um, so like in my cohort right now, I thought I was the one of two black people in a 29 person cohort and I'm not because the other girl is Afro-Latino. So she doesn't identify solely as black. She speaks Spanish and she identifies as Afro-Latina. Um, so I'm the only black person. My dad is Nigerian and he was born there and he came over here. My mom is American. Um, so, uh, so being, I think the good thing though about being in my cohort is that because we're counselors, we're learning about multicultural competencies. We're learning about, you know, other, um, people who we might encounter in our work. So being, I think going into that cohort, it was really good coming out of my church space 
coming out of a church space where I wasn't being validated, I wasn't being seen for more than my color, for more than what I could, you know, defend or fight about, because that's what I became known as, a girl who fights about everything. Um, but then going into this cohort with people who are like, I celebrate diversity, I celebrate people who don't look like me. Um, and then it was like a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. Um, and being able to sit with someone and say, yeah, this is what I struggle with being black. And they're like, they don't get it, but they're like, they want to know. They want to understand. And being able to sit with them and just tell them about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been, I, even just because I just started my program in August. Mm-hmm. So I'm coming up to almost a year and a couple of months. So even just this past year, um, it's been a huge difference just in the way that I'm able to relate with people. Yeah. So... What would you say either to society as a whole or you can do like a specific faction of society, you know, um, if you were to try to educate? Because what I am hearing, and I'm not sure, this isn't about my story, this is your story, but I do know that I grew up in a very, very white high school. It was very um, affluent area. It was kind of like, I always joke, it's kind of like the Stepford Wives town, you know? Um, I mean, you. I remember you had to pay like almost $100 to just be in band, like for your fee, you know? And it's like, most schools can't get away with that because people don't have the money, but they had the money. And there were a few that didn't have the money and so they would get like, you know, signed something that says that they could be exempt. But most people could afford it because it was that area. So I grew up uh, not, I I think maybe there were a couple black people that I worked with when I worked at McDonald's. And there were a few classmates that I'd known like from middle school and growing up, but they weren't really my friends, just kind of people that I knew, you know. Um, So when I became an adult and was going to college and things like that, I felt sometimes that I think I realized later consciously, but I think for years it was subconscious that maybe I would avoid spending too much time with people that weren't like me because I didn't want to offend anybody, you know, because I'm like a super anti-confrontational person, you know. And so sometimes when you don't know about the culture, you don't know what would be offensive because you know in my super sarcastic family you know there's like things that we say that you know you know there's things you can get away with saying to your friends that you can't say to your like acquaintances there's things you can say to your sister that you can't say to your mom you know um and I think it was difficult to learn as I got older and started to spend more time with people who I mean not even just skin color but like um you know, like class systems and like people who couldn't afford the types of things that I grew up, you know, with, not that I grew up rich or anything, but, you know, just middle class, Um, you know, in one of my education classes, they were talking about how there was a question on the, I think it was the FSA writing, uh, where they asked the students to write a story about a camel. And many of the students started talking about like cigarettes and things because they didn't know what a camel was. And that just seems so bizarre to me growing up in church because, like, I learned what a camel was, like, my first Christmas, you know? It's like, then there was the camels and the lambs, and, you know, it's a camel. I've never seen a camel, but, you know, it's in the stories uh, in the Bible, so I know what it is, you know? Um, And it's interesting to think that there are people that grow up with a childhood so different from yours, even in the same city. I mean, there are kids that grew up in Daytona that have never been to the beach, it's hard to fathom. You're like, how? I mean, it's there. It's right there. But when you're, you know, maybe you have like a single mom that's raising you and four other siblings and is never home because she has to work multiple jobs in order to pay, you know, who's going to take you to the beach? And there are so many things like learning. I mean, you know, people who grow up with different amounts of money than me, different cultures than me, different uh, upbringings. You know, I have friends that have moved here internationally that have just an entirely different worldview, you know, not growing up in America, not doing the American education system, you know. Um, And I think that's part of the reason I love the idea of this podcast is getting a chance to sit down with people who have lived differently in a open setting where we can say, 
what does this mean to you? Because to me, that's a joke. Or to me, that's, you know what I mean? And people, and that's one thing that I, I know you two will, I'll, I'll message you guys with like an article and I'll say, this person's like super offended by this. I'm like, I don't exactly get that. Can you explain that to me? And I think some people are just too like shy or too, um, you know, I don't know that you would ask that question of someone who wasn't a close friend, you know? And so sometimes it's hard to get to that space. You have to have a measure of trust in order mm-hmm. to have certain conversations with people. Yeah. Right. Because if, if you know that they know you and that you're not trying to be offensive or you're not trying to be wrong, then they understand where the question's coming from. I have, my, my best friend is white. And um, she'll call me and she'll say, Lissandria, so-and-so and so happened. Is is this okay? Did I do whatever, whatever? And I'm like, you're okay, Kelly. Don't, don't worry about <laughs> it. Don't, and, and I'll explain, you know, maybe someone with that point of view might have looked at it. Okay, well, I was just checking because I know you would know. <laughs> and so we chuckle sometimes. But, you know, I understand what you're saying. And it's, if you haven't had the experience, if you haven't walked a mile in my shoes, so to speak, then you don't understand how things affect me that, would have no effect to you because it has a different yeah. view and it's not your life. So of course you wouldn't have that experience, but you know, when people know that they're being hateful, mm-hmm. that's where I have a problem yeah. when you're deliberately trying to rain on my parade as I see it. And so I avoid those people like the plague if I, if I can. And I tried to explain to, to my, I tried to explain to my children growing up that, you're not always going to have the people that you want in your life and the people that you have to deal with on a job or at school or wherever you are, aren't always going to be in love with you. Mm -hmm. And so you have to prepare yourself for that eventuality and you can't be hateful because just because they're acting stupid doesn't mean you need to act stupid too. Mm -hmm. And so that's just being human. Right. And, um, you're, you always have to make sure that you treat people the way that you want to be treated. Whether they reciprocate or not, you're responsible for you. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've taught my children from day one. And that's what I remind myself of. That even if somebody else wants to be ugly, it's my responsibility to treat them with dignity and respect. Even if I'm not receiving that from them. Mm-hmm. And so that is where everybody needs to be springing from. No matter what race, relation, culture, creed. Homos- uh, I wanted to say um, sexual orientation any of that treat people like you want to be treated mm-hmm. it's that simple if everybody would focus on that that would squash a whole lot of crap yeah yeah for sure so either of you guys have any like specific sections of society or anything where you would just have a word of advice or anything like that I think um obviously specifically to the church, I would say, I mean, just simply just do better when it comes to, you know, saying that you have a multicultural church that's not really multicultural because you have a couple of black people in it, but then you don't try, but then you have those couple of black people or Spanish people or whatever other races in there besides the dominant. And you don't, I'm not saying go out of your way to um, base everything around them, but to include facets of their culture or to include aspects of their life into whatever it is you're doing there. I said, that's the easiest way to run them out of your church because they don't see themselves represented. They don't see themselves doing things that they can do, but they don't know they can because they don't see themselves. There's no none of representation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then also just understanding the nuances of different cultures. Um, when you have, you know, like for instance, when the whole thing with Colin Kaepernick and kneeling and you have a pastor who gets on a stage on I think you know maybe it was a memorial day or something mm-hmm. and he says you know we're going to stand and say the pledge because the people these days don't know how to mm-hmm. you don't do that there are so many black people in that auditorium that knows exactly why he's kneeling but you as a pastor chose to be ignorant of that and truly understanding what it is he's doing so and there's a difference between disagreeing mm-hmm. peacefully or even disagreeing outwardly and, yeah. and say and choosing to deflect the opportunity to understand. Like it when is, you yeah. say, well, it's just dumb or these people are just like, you know what I mean? It's not mm-hmm. dumb whether or not you 
agree yeah. is fine. And the, the thing is, it's not whether but, or not you agree with it, but I always tell people, I'm not telling you you need to agree with me. I'm just telling you you need to understand where I'm coming from. Yeah. Just understand, and you can make up your mind whether you agree or not. Yeah. But just understand where I'm coming from. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just, you know, having empathy, understanding other people's points of view, understanding their walks of life. Yeah. You don't have to agree with it, but you can understand it. Yeah. Um, and so I would definitely say that that to the church... I would just say do better when it comes to trying to be more multicultural. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would, and then to just people in general who don't, if you don't have people of color in your life, there's so many ways to try to understand culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and not even just Google, but there's YouTube videos, there's, you know, people who, scholars who have dedicated their lives to understanding um, the backgrounds and the history of people of color, that you can go read their books. Um, and so I would just say, just educate yourself if you don't have, you know, people of color in your life. Mm-hmm. What was the question? One more time. Are there any groups or culture as a whole, anything, any advice that you have for them to be able to be more empathetic or to kind of minimize some of the struggles that you've been through? Uh, how long do we have? <laughs> I'm not going to say Oh, we have about 15 minutes. So. Okay. Um, I want to say this to just the group of uh, people on both sides that are unsure or ignorant. And I don't mean ignorant in the negative connotation, but in the sense of you don't know. It's first to black people. It is your responsibility, I don't care what anybody says, to educate other people who don't know for the simple fact of if you're getting mad at someone who doesn't know how you want to be treated, you're dumb for being upset about it. Point blank, period. If someone is touching your hair constantly and you have not taught them that this is not okay and you get mad at it, you're dumb. Point blank, period. For... People who think that it's okay to just do things, white people specifically, who think it's okay to have counter-arguments for things like Black Lives Matter by saying all lives matter without actually understanding what we're trying to say. Cut it out. For those who are saying, oh, in regards to Colin Kaepernick, he was disrespecting our American flag, we don't worship the flag. We don't. We worship, we, we shouldn't worship the flag, period. We should be talking about what the flag represents. And what he was doing was not against America or what America represents. He was actually really professing what America represents. We were birthed out of protest. We were birthed out of the opportunity to voice our feelings about something. America didn't like the tyranny of the English government, so we said, hey, we're going to revolt. We're going to throw all of your tea into the harbor. And it happened, and that's what birthed an American experiment that is great. I want people to understand that we are all equal, but we're not all treating everyone equal. In order to do that, we have to understand that we're all going to go through different walks of life. We're all going to experience things from our perspective, and that perspective builds our reality. But just as much as it builds our perspective or our reality, we're all sharing the same reality that's concrete, that's a truth, that isn't relative to just me or you. It's everybody sharing this. So then we have to start working to bridge those gaps. And what I mean is if... What's a good example? Let's say you're a cop. I'm a regular black guy. You feel like your life is threatened by me. It would be both of our responsibilities to come to a point of unity to say, hey, I'm going to do what I can to make sure that you don't feel threatened by me. But at the same time, you're going to make sure that you're not prejudging me to feel threatened, if that makes sense. You shouldn't necessarily feel threatened when you're doing a traffic stop. I understand that you're going to be freaked out, but that shouldn't be your first mindset. 
I want people to understand that there is a systemic institutional oppression that has been instated to keep not just blacks down, but everybody down. And because we're so focused on the bread and circuses, we're not noticing the corruption that's really oppressing all of us. Because the same way you're white and broke, I'm black and broke. The same way you're going to sit here and struggle, I'm going to sit here and struggle. The same way you can be dealing with who knows what mentally, I can be dealing with who knows what mentally. And our similarities are so similar that they vastly outweigh the differences. And if we were to understand that and come together and bridge the gap, we can overcome so much of the oppression that's holding both of us down. Because, I mean, you look at... um like the Black Panthers. The Black Panthers get such a bad name, but they don't know that the Black Panthers were feeding poor kids. Not just blacks, blacks and whites. Because they recognized they're not our problem. That that that's not the issue. The issue are we're all broke. We're all hungry. We're all hungry. Um you said something about you said something about how there were people who grew up in Daytona that have never been to the beach. There are people who live in Compton like less than a few blocks from Long Beach. I think it's Long Beach. They've never been to the beach. They can't go because they get shot and killed. And that's their reality. It's not even that they can't get there physically. It's that they'd get shot if they tried to. And that's because of systems that have been put in place to keep people where they need to be. It's, it's organized. Someone thinks they need to be. Right. And it, it's all organized and set up that way. And it's if we all came together, then it is about. It's always about money. The only color that matters is green. Yeah. At the end of the really day, the, right? The separator. And I want people to understand that. I also want people to be sympathetic of, and this is my last one. I want people to be sympathetic of the fact that when we say something, as black people, when we say something, we don't need a counter argument. Hmm. We don't need a counter argument. If we say that we are being killed by police officers do not say that black people are killing more black people okay because it is it black has people nothing to do with what i just said at all we're 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 not sworn to serve and protect we're not cops are they're getting paid for it <laughs> and again this isn't a shot to cops it's I, it's not a shot to cops i love officers they do things that i would never do and i understand that there's a lot of stuff that they really go through and they get antsy and you never know if somebody's going to pull that trigger. I have seen some crazy things. I have seen mishaps that were the fault of both people. I, God know. But I am saying, if I'm speaking to one person or many people about how I feel like this is a modern day lynching and I'm tired of my people being killed, don't come at me and say that blacks kill more blacks than any other demographic. That, don't do that. Don't do that. I think that's a straw man argument or a non sequitur. One of those. But it's a fallacy. That's all I have to say. <laughs> okay, so we're going to end this podcast. I got this really fun game. Um, the name of it is Provocations for Applied Empathy. Um, it's created by Sub Rosa. He has a podcast, um, the Applied Empathy Podcast, which I really like. Um, they're not paying me to say that. <laughs> I don't have enough listeners yet to have to have um, advertisers. But I'm going to give you guys each one. And it's just an interesting, provocative question. So I'm not looking at them. I'm just picking out random cards. And you read your question out loud and answer it. Who wants to go first? Do you want to trade your card? Is that what that sound is? Uh, this is funny. It says, how does your body communicate? Uh, I, um, I'm in recovery from sarcasm. <laughs> As a high school teacher, um, there are days that I'll make a statement to the class and I literally just got the words out of my mouth, and someone will ask me about what I just spoke about. 
<laughs> and uh, I, I stepped back from myself. You know how you see yourself doing something? And I, I always remind myself to think before I open my mouth and speak because I'm in, I just mentioned I'm in recovery from sarcasm. And so <laughs> the initial reaction is to jump on them, for lack of a better description. So sometimes my body language might say, are you, are you kidding? Are you serious <laughs> right now? And my mouth will say what I just said again. <laughs> because I'm trying to, I'm trying to be kind. I will say that your facial expressions at work are sometimes a highlight of my time between periods. I'll walk outside and I just see your face and it's like this smile right now. That's the smile covering up all the other things that are going on. And mostly your eyes give you away. In my head is, is this for real? Is this really happening? So yes, my body, my, my body has a lot to say because I try to keep my mouth from saying it. Uh, who wants to go next? What does your card say? Um, actually, I'm going to change mine because I feel like I talked about this already. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, you can look at it and see. I'll trust you. I'll okay. give it a different one. Um, how does courage manifest in your work? Um, so, so when I hear work, I'm thinking about like what I do day-to-day work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I also work at the college I go to. Um, I work, I meet with undergrad students who are dealing with just issues, whether it's academic warnings or going through mental health issues, whatever. Um, so I meet with students and our department's kind of like a hub of resources. So if they need to go to counseling, we refer them to counseling. If they need to talk about a faculty member, we refer them to like Dean of Faculty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how does the courage manifest is when I have to have tough conversations with students. Mm-hmm. Like if they are on academic probation, they're failing that semester. And so if they fail these classes, up. they can't come back. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm not the one who has those conversations telling them they can't come back, thankfully. But I'm the one who has to kind of tell them, well, here's your options, and here's your one option, and if you choose not to do it, this is what will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, like, trying, so how does the courage manifest is when they're in the lobby doing the little check-in. I'm, like, doing a little meditation, getting ready for <laughs> to have this tough conversation with this student that I don't want to have. Yeah. So. All right, good. Good. Can I trade mine? <laughs> oh, I love these I'm going to have to do no take backs on the next podcast. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> when have your instincts led you astray? Hmm. Hmm. I told you these cards are good. These are really good. When have my instincts led me astray? Um. Oh, oh my gosh. Okay, so like you, you know how you say you're recovering from sarcasm i never went to rehab for it i don't <laughs> i don't see it as an you issue you haven't even gotten to step one admitting you have a right. problem <laughs> the problem is i'm not sarcastic enough i was born sarcastic i came out the womb they're like is he going to cry and i was like where <laughs> um, <laughs> however i have a slick mouth i have quite a slick mouth i guess it developed when i was down here as a result of bullying because I am thinner than a bean pole. If I turn sideways, I will disappear. And so my protection was to be defense very... mechanism. Right. My defense mechanism was being very quick-witted. And I would cuss people out without using a cuss word and just making them feel completely inferior when they're sitting there like, what is he talking about? What did he just call me? <laughs> What's an imbecile? I don't know. Um, <laughs> so my instinct... With a lot of things is immediately destroy people intellectually with a barrage of obscenities and insults, like just destroy them. Mm -hmm. And those have led me astray quite a bit, especially (laughs) when you're riding your bike home from school and some person just yanks you off your bike and beats the crap out of you for saying such horrible things to them. They deserved it, but then I also deserved the butt whipping, so my instincts would lead me astray in such things. As of late, I have not had an issue with it, because who's going to talk down to me? 
when I literally when they literally look up to me. Right. <laughs> so just to put it in perspective for those of you listening to audio, Gabe is about double my height. <laughs> I I hug him and probably my like I nose is like at his belly button. I'm pretty sure that's pretty accurate. I'm six eight. <laughs> I do not play basketball. I do not like basketball. Uh, I will watch it. Just for the record. But I don't like to play. <laughs> Football is where it's at. Wow. Well, thank you guys so much for, so much for um, being so honest and transparent. Um, Does anybody have anything that they want to promote before we're done? Michelle, you have a blog, right? Yeah, I do have a blog. Let me remember the name of it. I haven't written on it in a while. Um, (laughs) It is, so it's Michelle with two L's, O-E, O-Y-E, dot WordPress dot com. All right, well, thank you guys so much for being here today. I really, really appreciate your time and your honesty and willingness to come here. And uh, I really think that this podcast will be good for the people who listen and um, encouraging for people who've been through some of your similar stories and could hear themselves in, in your stories. So thank you so much. Thank you.